You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic, to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's conversation is with Ronaldo Walcott, who teaches in the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education at University of Toronto, where he is the director of the Women and Gender Studies Institute. He is the author and editor of a number of books, including Black Like Who, Writing Black Canada in 1997, Rude, Contemporary Black Canadian Cultural Criticism in 2000, Queer Returns, Essays on Multiculturalism, Diaspora, and Black Studies, all with Insomniac Press, On Property in 2021 with Biblio Oasis, and most recently, The Long Emancipation, Moving Toward Black Freedom, published with Duke University Press, and the occasion for our conversation today. In our conversation here, we explore the relationship between emancipation and freedom, the enigma of time and black freedom struggle, music and meaning, expression and mobilization, and the complexity of pessimism in our long age of anti-black violence. Hello, Ronaldo. Welcome. It's great to have you here and have a chance to talk about your new book. Thank you for having me, John. Looking forward to the conversation. Um, I want to start off, uh, first of all, I just want to say I'm really happy you made the time for to talk about this book. I really loved it. It's an uh, uh, incredibly important book. Right? I, I liked reading it. I thought it was really well written. I thought the evocations were fantastic. Um, it's an immensely important book, uh, I think, philosophically and politically. And so when I read it... Um, over the summer, I was like, I got to make sure we find some time to talk about it because I really want to, uh, you know, hear your thoughts on the book, but also really urge people to get eyes on this. It's really a fantastic piece of work that I think will have impacts in multiple kinds of fields. Uh, and so really, thank you so much for giving a, a giving me the time to chat with you about it. Oh, thank you for those kind words and, and supporting the work in this way. I appreciate it. Let me ask you, you know, to get started, uh, really just an invitation to narrate us into the project in terms of how you came to it. You know, it's, it is um, like any book, I'm sure a book that took over your life for an extended period of time. And we put aside so many things when we write books. It's a whole existential event, um, you know, in terms of, of our health and our eating and our friendships and so forth. Um, so something motivates us to write these books, you know, we're dr- drawn in by urgent political, philosophical, aesthetic concerns. So I just wanted to, to ask you, so what drew you to this project? You know, what motivated you towards uh, the project and to write this kind of book at this moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the, 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 the book and the project that, that, on the on the pins, the book comes out of two moments that for a lot of people they might not put together, but for me, I couldn't help but put them together. The first moment is the kind of um, black political organizing in the post Trayvon Martin moment, mm. and my own 
kind of very tangential relationship to that, um, organizing very locally in the city of Toronto, um, occasionally being asked to speak at um, press conferences alongside members of what was the local BLM organization, Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. to Toronto. And so that was one moment. And then the other moment was watching over the years, um, particularly Africans and others crossing the Mediterranean into Europe and thinking about um, how the question of freedom was animating both of these, both of these, these things, Mm -hmm. Um, this, this migration across to Europe, debates about policing, carcerality, yeah. And the thing that for me that bound them together was the question of slavery and the shit. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I spent a lot of time, you know, kind of thinking about um, these, these two movements of different kinds and then thinking about the claims that were being made on behalf of these movements. And mm-hmm. it always returned back to this kind of question of freedom. Mm-hmm. I was really interested in how um, in the North American context, you know, the question of, Black people as not being free, um, Black people as outside the category of the human, how all of these kinds of debates that had been taking place in Black studies, in, in debates around settler colonialism, had become a part of activist rhetoric and language. Mm-hmm. And was thinking about how, on the other side, that when Africans and, and others cross the Mediterranean, that in many ways the, the response of Europe which was obviously not a welcoming one, reproduce both the narrative of the African as outside the category of the human mm-hmm. and reproduced a narrative that, in, that not only um, incarcerate, uh, incarcerate a narrative, but literal incarcerations. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so for me, I wanted to figure out how I could write something that would in particular speak to my undergraduate students that would act as a kind of introduction into um, some of these debates and questions that would give them a trace of where some of these ideas about Black people not being human or being less than human come from, that would map a kind of longer history without being historical um, in the sense of being a a professional history, but would map this kind of longer history of how we might tie what Black people were experiencing in, say, 2014 in North America around police killings, vigilantism, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and Africans leaving the continent and heading to Europe in search of the resources that might make a life. And so that's really the genesis of of the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's... You know, I wanted to ask just because I think the the way authors come to books is is always an interesting story, but also because as as you articulated, this book clearly comes out of a sense of urgency. Um, but also, as you know, as you were talking about, you know, it was it was a, in in a moment, but also the way this moment evokes something much longer, right? Um, you know that it, I mean, I was I was thinking when you you know reading the book and when you were talking about the you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and, and protests and resistance. Um, and then, you know, putting that alongside uh, Africans in the Mediterranean, it did make me think of a number of years ago, 
at this point, uh, Paul Gilroy giving a talk at Amherst College when I was there, and he referred to it as as our middle passage, meaning our contemporary moments, middle passage, and and the way these things. Uh, they, it's not just an associative logic, but it's it's somehow an embedded uh, relationship that I think your book really draws out um, in such important ways without doing, as you say, a sort of, you know, a history history, but instead something yeah. very different. Yeah, I mean, as you know, in the book, I argue that what we see happening in the middle in, in the Mediterranean is an extension of the original Middle Passage. Mm-hmm. And and that is very much informed by, you know, my decades of reading histories around thinking about how force movement from the continent happens. Mm-hmm. And so if in one moment, if in the post-Columbus moment, African bodies are stolen, kidnapped, and brought to the Americas, in the post in, in the in the post-colonial moment. African bodies are forced to move towards some resources because mm-hmm. the colonial context continues to rob Africa of its own forms of self-determination. Yeah. So for me, this is a continuation of a kind of long jury of history. And, 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 and so it's not like the Middle Passage is a finite thing that began and ended at a particular point in time, but all of the kinds of practices that made it possible continue to animate and shape global life. And so even though we know that most Africans who migrate on the continent don't actually ever leave the continent, the, the fact that a few were able to cross the, middle, cross the Mediterranean and make mm-hmm. it into Europe and that this becomes a kind of global conversation tells you something about the arrangements of global life when Black people move. And so yeah. for me, there's this question that I was pursuing in this work about whether or not Black people are walking down the street in North America or getting on a rickety fishing boat to cross the Mediterranean towards Mm -hmm. the possibility of being able to make a life. But when Black people move, it puts global capital and representative democracy and ideas of freedom into crisis. And for me, all of that really begins with the Middle Passage. That, that's so crucial. I mean, that's that's a fantastic way of of setting up uh, setting up the book, but also just getting to the heart of the book. I mean, that's for me what you know what makes this book urgent. But also, you know, you said something that that connects to to students, and and it is it's a difficult book, but I think in that way is is a teachable book, but a teachable book that absolutely disrupts and upends uh, so many narratives that it really like the title and subtitle are all about which i want to ask you about um uh, so let me i I mean i may as well transition myself to to asking you about it um you know i i really like the title and subtitle there are lots of different ways that books get titled um you know i i my own story of publication is is one denied title after another by publishers um (laughs) And so sometimes they po- you know they can be poetic. Sometimes they're directly descriptive. Um, and yours, really, I think the title uh, captures so much of what the book's about. So I wanted to ask you maybe to walk us through it a little bit, and in two ways, right? The title, "The Long Emancipation," subtitle, "Moving Toward Black Freedom." And I want to ask, sort of in 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 two phases, for you to reflect on the title and subtitle. 
One is this pairing of, of emancipation and freedom, right? What drew you to this and how would you characterize that relationship in the pairing of, of, of emancipation and freedom? You know, it was interesting to me when I first saw it, I thought, is this a sort of conversation about continuum, right? How they're located on a continuum or a point of contrast, right? And, and I, you know, just so when I picked up the book, I really was intrigued by the pairing of emancipation and freedom in the subtitle and title. So I'm curious to hear you talk about what drew you to those terms as an organizing principle in the book, right? That, 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 that tension between the two. But also in the subtitle especially, but also, I mean, it blends a subtitle and title, the temporal dimension of, of the book, the book's titling, which is move, long, and toward, all of which indicate a, a stretch, but not a stretch of, you know, we're here and there. Right, it's not dots on a line on a grid, in terms of this long emancipation and movement toward Black freedom. But really, I say like a temporal stretch, a way of sort of standing in multiple places at once, that I think is such an interesting dimension of the temporality of the book. But that's sort of my sort of you know what struck me about the title and and how it really had such an effect on on me even getting started in the book. But I want to ask you really about that about freedom and emancipation but also the way the title and subtitle indicate something about the time structure of your meditations. Yeah, John, those are some really wonderful and amazing observations about the title. And yeah, I was definitely trying to capture the temporal in the title. First, you know, the kind of question of emancipation um, as being bound by certain kinds of um, moments of time. And I wanted to find um, a way to bridge the end of slavery and the end of colonization. And for me, um, emancipation did that. Emancipation in this work is defined as juridical and legislative. Mm -hmm. And in each of those moments, whether it is the emancipation of the slaves in the US or the British colonies or the end of formal colonization in Ghana or Nigeria or what becomes Kenya and so on, mm -hmm. the juridical and the legislative is bound in time in a very particular kind of way. Mm -hmm. And for me, that is a juxtaposition to what I understand freedom as and to be. Um, to me, the juridical and the legislative does not allow for a sense of freedom that is um, autonomous, um, sovereign, fully in control of one's body and self and community and world-making. So, you know, the long of the long emancipation is that we are still in the time of emancipation. Mm -hmm. And that because Black people remain, whether they're in the, on the continent or in the Americas or elsewhere, remain in the time of emancipation, it means that freedom is yet to arrive. Freedom is yet to come. Mm -hmm. And um, so... This long emancipation, let's say it goes back to the eighteen, the mid eighteen, mid eighteen hundreds, um, mm -hmm. the eighteen thirties, and it continues into the present, even impunitively, um, black nations, even if they call themselves republics and so on, because mm -hmm. they're still bound by um, the legacy of the modernist nation state and its mm -hmm. protocols of citizenship and so on. So they're not able to reinvent the, na the nation form in mm -hmm. ways that might move towards what I would call freedom. 
Mm. And so the title is trying to encapsulate all of those kinds of dynamics, um, the temporal boundaries of emancipation, um, the unfulfilled desires of freedom, um, a freedom that if it could be achieved might mark ways of being together that we are yet to imagine. Um, mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. but the, but the long emancipation and the moving toward freedom is also meant to actually point to the problematic, as I said earlier, of when black people move, literally pick mm-hmm. up and move and how when black people literally pick up and move, um, crisis ensues. So as we all know, at the end of slavery in the US, in the British colonies, in Brazil and elsewhere, the one thing that all enslaved people did um, in large numbers was to pick up and move. And the minute that they moved from those plantations, again, the legislative and the judicial came down on them, meaning that vagrancy laws and all kinds of laws were mm-hmm. immediately enacted to prohibit their movement. And similarly, um, in, in, the, in, the, in the post-colonial period, at the end of, at the end of colonize, formal colonization, Black people again um, attempted to move, to return to communities that had been fractured by the colonial project and so on. And again, the legislative and the juridical came down to bear the insistence on a particular kind of nation state form by extra governmental, extra national um, institutions like the UN and Mm -hmm. so on, prohibited literal black movement. And of Mm -hmm. course, with the movements across the Mediterranean into Europe, we see how black movement enacts crisis. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I was also trying to map all of that into these two into these two parts of the title, which is to Mm -hmm. say that the long emancipation um, is an attempt to demonstrate that because we're still in the time of emancipation, we're still fighting to move towards freedom. We're still Mm -hmm. bounded by the juridical and the legislative to think about what freedom might be. But I was also suggesting that in our struggles, in our forms of resistance, in our refusals, that we are indeed attempting to move towards some notion of freedom, some notion of bodily autonomy, some notion of a full sovereign self, um, some notion in which um, the question of a very particular form of the modernist nation state does not come to define black life. Because what I try to argue in, in in the work is that at every instance that black people move, tremendous forms of violence accompany them. And so the kind of question mm-hmm. for me is how do how do we break that violence? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things come to mind hearing hearing you talk about that um, that insistence on movement and the, the sort of revolutionary like effect of that movement. Revolutionary in the sense that it, it you know it's something is happening that it provokes such violence. I mean, it did bring to to my mind uh, you know. In terms of, of association, I mean, it's a it's a different story for you know because it's a different book, but very much along those lines is Angela Davis's uh, chapters on Bessie Smith and her Blues Legacies book, which is all about movement, right? And these songs about movement, and it's a much more uh, you know specifically gendered around uh, around Southern Black women and and these fantasies of movement and lovers in every city, but also part of the Great Migration um, in the U.S. and you know so 
you know, I, I really find that that so interesting, the, the relationship between movement and freedom, but also movement and anti-black violence. And, you know, I, what I, when I was reading this book and, this, and hearing you talk now sort of confirmed it, I thought about how well those things fit together, right? Um, fit together as telling a story about capacities for imagining freedom, but also the way that capacity of, of acting on that imagination is a provocation of violence and, and, and how to make sense of that. Yeah, there's no doubt that violence is a significant interdiction in prohibiting black people from inventing forms of freedom that might be anatomy to capital and white supremacy. Yeah. And wherever it is that black people try to seize hold of their bodies, um, either individually or collectively, um, that attempt to seize the body is interrupted and interdicted by tremendous amounts of violence. So, for instance, in the book, I used the example of just black men wearing baggy pants, sagging mm-hmm. pants, mm-hmm. and how, again, the judicial and and the legislative has to be enacted to prohibit um, yeah. this particular expression of owning one's body. Yeah, because that goes, uh, you know, as, as you point out in the book, I, I think is, you know, there's a lot of nuance and but also righteousness in your your reflection on the, the responses to, to sagging pants, um, you know, because it, it was just a reminder Right. If, if one needed to be reminded that 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 discourse is not about aesthetics and properness, it's about complete and total regulation to the point of excessive violence. Um, exactly. And as you say, it's the juridical enters the field. Mm-hmm. Right. Rather than a dirty look or older people you know, judging, you know, none of these. There's no hiding behind generational change in your treatment of it. It's it's absolutely about the juridical and the the, the repressive state apparatus and all of its elements. Um, absolutely, no no doubt about that. Yeah, and I think that there's something about the nature of blackness and black life that both invites the violence of the state, but also simultaneously simultaneously shows up the limits of the state. And I think it's by showing up the limits of the state that the, that the violence is then enacted. That mm. there's something about the quality and nature of Black life that demonstrates that the state is actually a particular kind of blunt instrument and force that's meant to actually keep all of us captive. But Black people in this particular historical moment for the long jury of, you know, the the post-Columbus era black people mm-hmm. and indigenous people, but black people have been the brunt of, of that violence. Yeah. Let me ask you about the cover. In some ways we will have gotten well into this conversation without opening the book. Um, I love the cover. Um, I, I pay attention to, to covers. Uh, I think like everybody else and it is, um, uh, it's a print by, or sorry, a painting, a, an acrylic on canvas by our Torquasi uh, type uh, Dyson, Torquasi Dyson. Um, it's titled uh, "A Single Section: The Journey Number Three. So, I, you know, I didn't ask you ahead of time if you had a hand in in choosing the cover, or but uh, you know, if, if you did, I'm really interested in in this choice. But even if it was a, a cover designed by the press. Um, 
I found it to be actually quite a, a haunting and profound way of of beginning the book before we open it. Um, and, and when I post the podcast, there'll be a, a link so people can see the cover. Um, and I'll, I'll make a link to the artist as well. So I wanted to ask you a little bit of any thoughts you had on the cover, which I found fantastic and its own kind of aspect of the book. Yeah, um, I, I did choose the cover <laughs> and I chose the cover in conversation with my, my friends, Dion Brand and Christina Sharp. And um, I'd been um, introduced to Torquasi Dyson's work um, at a, a symposium that celebrated um, 20 years of Sidia Hartman's uh, Scenes of Subjection mm-hmm. and came to, and I've come to sense, been really enthralled by her work. Um, but this comes from a series of works that she had been doing on sections of ships Um abstracting the ship, thinking about questions of black humanness, slaveness, ecology, questions of the sea. Mm-hmm. And when I saw this particular um, this particular work, it spoke to me in, in a number of ways. Of course, it immediately evokes the question of the passage on the on, on the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. but it also evoked the question of the passage. Um, in the, in the middle passage and it evokes this question of movement and and the ship as you know is so fundamentally central to a particular kind of discourse in black studies around how we think about diasporic connections how mm-hmm. we think about um the manner in which um black people come to be spread globally around the world and of mm-hmm. course you know the chrono ship trope of the of, of the ship then is a way to very quickly point to um, a kind of global sense of blackness mm-hmm. and immediately it kind of sets up the parameters for making links about black life black experience black consciousness beyond the nation state mm-hmm. and so you know as you see in this work I kind of roam, you know, I might be talking about something in the U.S., but then I might be talking about something in Canada. I might mention something in Britain or the Caribbean. And it's because I'm working with a kind of older conception of Black studies that refuses the ethnicization of Black studies as mm-hmm. African-American or Black Canadian or Black British. I'm working with a conception of Black studies that's very much influenced by the thinker Sylvia Winter. And I'm deeply, deeply um, influenced by Paul Gilroy's work, particularly the Black Atlantic. Um, that's a, 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 mm-hmm. a text that has been shaping my thinking for over two decades now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when I saw the Torquasi Dyson work and it was abstracted, um, this abstraction of the shit really lent itself to embodying um, what I was trying to achieve with my writing. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic cover. It, it you know, um, I think covers matter, especially as you know, hearing you talk about it, the way it really anchors uh, a core of the book. That it's also you know an abstraction, but also kind of an abyss. 
of, of you know, you said the sort of abs- abstraction of the ship as this this recurrent recurring abyss in history, right? Continues to animate all of all of this uh, all of these movements, long you know, long movements towards emancipation, towards freedom. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, let me ask you how to characterize a book. I have to say this uh, personally for what it's worth. I've been wanting to write a book and planning to write a book where I wanted to write very short chapters, right? And write 20, 25 chapters rather than five long chapters. And so when I got this book and I opened it and there were, uh, you know, a number of chapters with, you know, I was like, okay, now I have a model for this out of a press. <laughs> Why don't you write these longer uh, chapters? Um, I could say, well, I want to write a book sort of more in this sort of format and style. So I really like that. I think it, it allows you, as you were just saying, to move very quickly in chapters and move back and forth. And I think keeps us both oriented and disoriented as readers, uh, precisely because it's not a long, you know, there's not a sort of 35 page chapter on Fanon or something like that. Um, but that aside, I was, you know, I, I, I like that format. I, I hope we have more books with with this style of writing. I think it's so effective um, and, and compelling as a reader. But then I also I maybe sort of step back and ask, like, what kind of book is this? Like, how would I characterize? Now, not really even mean genre, but that might be a nice sort of, you know, starting term for it. And I couldn't quite. I couldn't quite come up with a, a characterization um, that I was happy with. And so I want to ask you, how do you characterize this book? Because it's not a memoir, but it is has a lot of first person. It has a lot of reflections on, you know, what you said at the beginning of, of being embedded as a thinker in this particular historical moment of resistance and your own, your own place in that. But also it has a, a, a story about history it has a story about political protest, current events, but also across the Atlantic world, North and South Atlantic. So really, how would you characterize this uh, book and what drew you to write in this register? Because it is not, um, it is a different kind of academic book. I don't want to, it is an academic book in the sense of it's addressing critical issues at the heart of black studies. Um but it's also written in a different way and, and sort of how and why you came to write that book and how you would characterize it. I would love to hear you think, uh, think and talk about that a little bit. Yeah. You know, um, there are two happy, I'm going to call them accidents with the book. <laughs> the first is that a number of years before I, I started to write the book, I heard Ken Whitaker at Duke um, give a lecture at the University of Toronto in which he was talking about the second book and he was he was suggesting in fact he was more than suggesting he was saying that you know academics should really loosen themselves up <laughs> when they come to their second book um, that you know that they should take some some risks beyond the standard monograph yeah. At the time I wasn't, this was not my second book, but I was like, you know, I, I heard that and it stuck with me. And then when I wrote what I thought and what I characterized as an essay, um, there was a, a desire to kind of break the essay up into sections. Mm-hmm. And somehow they got labeled, the sections got labeled as chapters. 
<laughs> and I stayed with it. Hey, At first, I, like I was a little bit uncomfortable by that. I thought, hmm, then that might take away from the idea that it's an essay. But I, I stayed with it because then I remembered that I was motivated by writing this as a work that my undergraduates could engage with. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would characterize the the long emancipation as, you knew the term earlier, urgency. It's, it's a work of urgency, mm-hmm. but it's a work of urgency that I hope shows its debt, its debt to the long history of thinking these questions, these problems, these positions, these situations by black dashboard thinkers. Mm-hmm. And so if anything, you know, in some ways it is a distillation of what I've been reading and thinking and struggling with for over two decades of being a black scholar and academic and the occasion of the tragic occasion that led to the movement for black lives, the tragic occasions that lead to Africans crossing the middle passage gave me the opportunity to bring that distillation, to bring all of that work into this distilled form. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, I see this as, if you will, a kind of footnote in this long ongoing conversation that black intellectuals, black activists have been having for, um, you know, since at least the end of emancipation, um, in in the Americas, at the, which happens at different times, right? If you're in the British, the US, Brazil, and so on. But that this conversation continues, that um, Black intellectuals keep coming back to this conversation about what might constitute the nature of freedom um, at different points with different kinds of emphases because of different kinds of events or ongoing events. Um, so, yeah. And, it, you know, when I was thinking about this question of, of sort of you know, how to characterize, I don't even want to say categorize, that's, that's a little too much, but to characterize the book and thinking about, you know, the, the shorter chapters that build uh, on each other, but also move back and forth across each other. I actually did start to think about how many books in the black intellectual tradition are short chapters. I mean, I just think of something as canonical as Souls of Black Folk. I mean, they're often just like 10, 12 page chapters, you know. Um, and it's interesting, you know, also to think about the, you know, the pace and 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 rhythm of texts in re- it, it, when they are responsive texts, you know, that sometimes it's not a moment that calls for uh a convoluted excursus, but rather direct hit and declaration description and sort of ethical, political sort of insurgency. I mean, it's a very insurgent book, I think, that way. It sort of emerges and has very powerful hit, right? Whether whether that's a hit around thinking epistemology, aesthetics, politics, history, memory. Um, and, you know, in, in that way, I think it just even stylistically even just its composition captures a sense of, of urgency. You read it differently, you know, when it's a, when it's a short, many short chapters, but also I, you know, when you, you know, I 
I don't mean to bring it always back to to classrooms, but also immensely teachable that way. You know, um, really uh, dense without without turning you know every reader into a deciphering uh, hieroglyphs <laughs> sort of reader. But also, yes, you know, I the definitely 20... didn't want to do that. Yeah, <laughs> but but also the twenty years of of distillation, I think, absolutely comes through. You know, for those of us working on similar problems and similar thinkers in the tradition. Um, uh, so I, I love that that part of the book, and specifically, um, you know, my favorite chapters. I always, you know, it's not always the case that that, that books have favorite chapters, but I really love chapter sixteen and seventeen. Um, they are at the center of the, you know, sort of center second half of the book, um, where you, you have both the playful and deadly serious meditation on funk, right. Which is sort of introduced sort of playfully in this playful in the sense of like the multiple significations, you know, around, you know, you put it in the first person in terms of you smell funky, the sound is funky, the system is funky, Right in the sense of funk being, you know, an articulation of various modes of out of joint, right, affective and political. But then you transition that into a discussion of humanism and the human. I, I love that, you know, I, I love that connection. I, I think it's seamless and actually quite profound um, and interesting. And I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about, you know, that that why funk, why humanism and the human. You mentioned, you know, uh, you have a real debt to Sylvia Winter. That's obviously part of it. Um, and so Sylvia Winter's work is obviously looming in the background and foreground at times here. But it made me think of of both uh, M. A. Césaire and discourse in colo uh, on colonialism and his trope that, that he wants a humanism made to the measure of the world. And then Fanon's probably more famous evocation of a new humanism, especially in the, the conclusion to The Wretched of the Earth. Both of which are broad theoretical evocations, right? Of a of a you know moving beyond humanism, and that was happening at a time when French thinkers, especially, but European thinkers uh, uh, more broadly, white European thinkers were sort of playing around with humanism, anti-humanism, and so I'm curious how in you know 2022, in evoking you know a new sense of the human, right, or rethinking the human. How you situate your meditations in relationship to anti-humanism, humanism, the new humanism, humanism to the measure of the world? You know, where is it situated in that tradition? Uh, that's very conflicted and very diverse. But I think especially because you enter through funk, I think there's something really singular happening here. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so the entering through funk for me was important because it continued for me, the kind of kinetic trope of movement, you know, um, funk as in funk to dance, while um, funk as in smelling bad, but the smelling bad is because you've been working or dancing, mm -hmm. right? So kind of holding on to the kinetics of Black movement and what Black movement affords us. And of course, you know, there's a way that one could empty out the question of the human by turning to the language of the species, mm -hmm. which I sometimes do in my work because the human is such a problematic term. But I come to, you know, the, the question through exactly what you identify Fanon's 
a new humanism and scissors um um, a measure of a new humanism. And I come to them because Sylvia Winter's influence on my thinking is so deep and so profound. And she comes to her own articulations through both of those moments too in Fanon yeah. and Césaire that um, I am trying to work out and I oscillate between um, the Afro-pessimist argument that Black people are outside, totally outside the category of the human, and 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 then I am at the point where I am, but we can't see the question of the human to white supremacy. So a new humanism is a possibility; it's something to be worked at. And so in in this work, I'm I'm, I'm oscillating between the two of those moments. Mm-hmm. And funk, if you will, becomes the kind of joint that does something to activate what I would argue could be another logic of the human. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, um, when black people get funky, they also get in, that also gets interdicted by violence. Yeah. So part of my argument is that what keeps happening is that at every moment that there's a possibility of overthrowing the dominant terms of European understanding of what it means to live a life, mm-hmm. that forms of violence interdict. And those forms of violence become so intense that we only get glimpses, what I call glimpses of freedom. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, there are moments where, you know, to be funky on the dance floor to watch black people on the dance floor is to see some moments of freedom to watch how a black woman might style her hair is to glimpse some moments of freedom. Um, but as soon as that happens, as soon as we get these glimpses of freedom, violence descends. And so, you know, the question then for me around humanism is if black people could be fully autonomous, would what we call the human take on an entirely different shape? Mm-hmm. And my strong suspicion is, yes, it would take on an entirely different shape. Um, that the question of how we think about the species would be an entirely different kind of question. Now, that then returns us to, so would we call that arrival, the human? So are mm-hmm. we actually... So one of the things that I have not sorted out for myself and I go back and forth is whether or not it's the word human that we are struggling against or is there the content of what makes up the human? And if it's the contents of what makes up the human, then that's a legitimate and really important struggle. And that's where I'm like, yeah, black people are outside that particular category of the human. Mm-hmm. But if the human is to mean something else than the contents of post-Columbus European humanism. If the human is to mean something other than that, then we're engaged in a struggle for the elaboration of what that might be. Mm-hmm. And so on most days, I'm thinking that I am engaged in the struggle, the struggle for the elaboration of what the, of what this, the species might be. Uh-huh. Really interesting. And, you know, listening to you talk about that and, and, 
you know, I've thought a lot about this this relationship between funk and 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 human the human or, or rethinking humanism, contesting the human. I mean, one thing you know, and, and this is an association, but also I think one that probably matters a lot is you know the relationship between funk and blues as musical genre that also says something important in the intellectual tradition in terms of of black humanity. And I mean that because I'm thinking, you know, most famously, the very close of Invisible Man when uh, Ellison evokes the lower frequencies. And this is something for all of his differences with Richard Wright, something that resonates also with Richard Wright. This idea that black humanity is preserved in, in, in this lower frequency, the frequency that white people can't hear, right, or can't discern. And that's the blues tradition or the early jazz tradition, you know, all the way up through Louis Armstrong and, and you know, until, until Bop really changed jazz. But funk is, of course, a, a 70s moment or late 60s, 70s musical moment, which makes for me, makes, uh, opens up for me this really interesting question that I think your book is, is, is engaged with um, at, at one level or another about how that that musical shift is also a shift of the significations of black humanity and the different ways that it in it, it both avoids and invites not invites but but uh, anticipates violence yeah you know i mean in some ways funk is a holder for um what nicholas payton calls bam black american music yeah. And in some ways, you know, funk then is not just a musical genre outside of the blues or jazz or even R&B, but it's a, it's, it, it names all of that. And, mm-hmm. and that's part of what I'm, I was trying to get at, that there's something in Black expressive cultures, in Black expressive forms, um, whether they're working with the body whether whether they're working musically, whether they're working in in literature, you know, like when Toni Morrison opens jazz with the Sakti, like mm-hmm. you know, that's funk. And so, what I'm trying to suggest is that, like you know, black discrepant forms of expression encapsulate within them these glimpses of freedom. Mm-hmm. And to repeat myself, when those glimpses occur. Um, they're interdicted by violence. But if those glimpses could be extended over a jury of time, that mm-hmm. we're probably inaugurating new forms of social life, you know, as the way mm-hmm. Sylvia Winter would put it, um, which is to say that we're inaugurating um, an alternative to European humanism. And, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways, um, the potential of that alternative um, both invites violence, but also becomes a place where a certain kind of black sociality happens. That is, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to crib off of Ellison, yeah, the lower frequencies. Um, it is indeed, you know, what some people might sh- shorthand call black survival. That we don't yeah. only survive in relationship to um, white supremacist domination, but we also survive in relationship to each other. And that's mm-hmm. a kind of sociality that is outside of the context of the brutal imposition of European humanism that we can never live up to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, in thinking about, you know, you know, you know, the, 
you know, black, black American music and its relationship between these spaces of, of, of not just survival, but pleasure, right. And, and, and meaning making and world making and, and, you know, being emancipated, being free. <laughs> um, it is interesting because funk is so, you know, it's, that's part of what intrigued me about the way you started with all of the affective significations of funk, right? And the way you smell, you know, it's, it's a way of characterizing smell. But it's also funk is this loud, very public movement as, as, a, as a musical sound, as a musical genre, just like smell, right, is, is public. It intervenes in the public. And this notion of the lower frequencies in Ellison is interesting because I think it adds layers to Black America, an understanding of Black American music and signification across genre. But also the way blues had a particular kind of way of of living in those frequencies, living really in that interstitial space that Miles Davis and, and John Coltrane, but especially Miles Davis in terms of polemics, had really opposed in his jazz innovations of saying, no, we, we shouldn't be in these lower frequencies. We should be aloof, right? which is maybe another kind of lower frequency, but kind of an inaccessible, right, as a way of not entering that public space. But funk is... Like that, that way of thinking the the way all of these, all of these different musical uh, iterations of musical exp- uh, black musical expression do intervene in the public. But there's something so public about funk because, as you say, it's like it is dance music, it is smell, it is pleasure, it is joy, and um, the way. Then I think for me, reading that and thinking about it, and then especially hearing you talk now is a reminder of, you know, early jazz and blues. This is also dance music, right? Mm -hmm. This was not just mourning, you know, it was not just expression of pain. It was also where you went to, you know, drink and romance and have sex and get in fights and go with your friends. You know, it's always been that that funky space, right? That is, is a form of sociality that's not just in a different frequency. It is, you know, it's only in a different frequency in an interracial space. But in intra-racial space, it's about uh, all of these things you were just talking about. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 what you just said made me think immediately flashed into my head from the from the film and not the novel itself. The the uh, scene in um, Steven Spielberg's um, Alice Walker's novel, um, oh, Color Purple, the Color Purple in the juke joint. You mm-hmm. know. Um, the loving, the touching, the dancing, the fight, <laughs> the whole yeah. bit. And it's kind of like, you know, the kind of question of what constitutes Black forms of sociality outside the gaze of European humanism. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, when these forms of sociality take up space within the infrastructure of European humanism, what happens? And yeah. so for me, I was kind of suggest I suggest like funk is in some ways a whole way of life. Um, and it's a whole way of life that is intramural, but it's also intramural to black people, but it's also a way of life in which black people respond to the limits and expose the limits of European humanism. Um, they, re- they, they remain elusive to the capture of European humanism. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of, of the penultimate sentence in the book, um, which I'll read. 
You write, and yet we as black people reanimate those same lives intramurally with acts of practice still awaiting invention. Now, I've thought a lot about this sentence. Um, it's a really brilliantly constructed sentence. Um, you know, I don't know if you remember writing it, but it's, it's, it's crafted in at so many levels, right? There's this notion of reanimation, same lives, and intramural. You just mentioned intramural. I think that's such an interesting way of, of phrasing this. But then you say acts of practice still awaiting invention, which is, again, to the temporality of the book, the temporality that animates not just the book, but, but the, the question of Black freedom and, and Black freedom struggle uh, and Black freedom um, you know, advances and, and, and losses. So I, maybe even just talk a little bit about that sentence. And yet we as Black people reanimate those same lives intramurally with acts of practice still awaiting invention. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I don't remember writing it, but I do think that part of what I wanted to get at there was that at least there are at least a couple of things that happen uh, and, and are happening continuously for Black people. One is we're trying to continually evade captivity. We're mm -hmm. continually alert to the fact, whether conscious or unconscious, that European humanism is a kind of hammer, um, a kind of death trap, a kind of death sentence for us. Mm -hmm. And yet there's some things or some ideas out of European humanism, like the question of freedom. Um, and again, this is how I'm very much influenced by Paul Gilroy's thinking, mm -hmm. um, that the question, this question of freedom is something that we might want to hold on to. And for us, but for us to hold on to the ideal possibilities of freedom, we have to engage in acts of reinvention because we know that European humanism's not logic of freedom can't be the same logic of freedom that we inhabit. Mm -hmm. So the kind of acts of practice towards reinvention is the act of practice towards reinventing what freedom might be and might mean. And of course, the conceit of the book is that if Black people get to reinvent freedom, that somehow we all become free, not just black people, indigenous people, white people, and so on. And so this kind of, these acts of invention, and I don't mean for it to sound like it's some kind of linear process, but that every time black people reinvent our relationship to, you know, the standard ideals of, of European humanism, freedom, justice, these kinds of things, that what, what happens is, um, we inaugurate new modes of being social in the world. Um, so that's what I was kind of reaching for and trying to create a space where we can imagine Black people not as functioning to reform humanism, but as functioning to inaugurate um, new forms of social life, new ways of imagining what it means to be um, the shared species entity. And, um, you know, the, the nature of the intramural there is the attempt to recognize that Black people come to these questions from a m multiple places. Mm -hmm. And that part of that multiplicity is a part also of the act of invention. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, and this maybe you've spoken a little bit to this, um, but I think you know, given what you were just saying, it's it makes. It, it, I mean, I think I think that it it raises this question about where you would situate your book in terms of pessimism. And I mean that in a very broad sense, but also specific sense. Obviously, you know, in our our shared field of Black studies, Afro-pessimism and its very particular iteration, Wilderson, Sexton, and and others, um, has this, you know, has, you know, you've described it yourself as, you know, this very specific kind of social ontology that, you know, that, that doesn't have a place for Black people in being. Right. And there's a I mean, part of it, the pessimism of that is not just a description of a political state of affairs, but uh, a description of the nature of the world. Right. But also there's the pessimism of the tradition. I think if people like Richard Wright and especially the Fanon of black skin, white masks, you know, when when Fanon says the destiny of the black man is to be white. Right. That that kind of pessimism. But one of the things I think, especially about somebody like Fanon, is it's a pessimism that sees ontology as very precarious. And I'm not sure other forms of, of, of pessimism think of, of the structure of being as so precarious. I think you know, there are elements of contemporary Afro-pessimism that are, are much more fixed and rigid and in that way much more pessimistic. So when you evoke these sort of notions of invention, of, of, of the intramural and reanimation and funk. I wonder how to think about your work in this book and just the question of pessimism broadly, but you know, I guess maybe especially in this moment where Afro-pessimism is, is kind of the one thing, is one of those things that so many people feel they have to address, especially in a work like this, which is about emancipation and freedom. Yeah, I mean, I, I am enormously... Um, persuaded by many of the arguments of the Afro-pessimists. Um, I get the, the, the place where I park is on the question of, of reinvention. And I'm not saying that, um, that they themselves um, might not be interested in reinvention, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what, we, what do we do um, when Black people recognize that we are indeed in a profoundly anti-Black world. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's, writing out of the traditions that I write out of, um, especially the, a tradition of, of Caribbean intellectual thought um, that undergirds a lot of my thinking, that I can't escape the question of reinvention and renewal. Mm-hmm. But I do think that, you know, the Afro-pessimist school of Wilkerson, Sexton, and so on have given us a, a, a language of precision around anti-Blackness that is powerful and extremely useful. And, of course, in the book, you know, I, I cite that moment from Frank Wilderson's, um Red, White, and Black, where he writes of the void of non-relation to Black people. And so for me, um, that kind of articulation was really important for me to be able to grip and grapple with what was happening to Black people and continues Mm -hmm. to happen to Black people in the post-Trayvon Martin moment 
and what was greeting black people as they crossed the Mediterranean. And so this kind of void of non-relation, this precise language around an anti-black world in which the possibility of a certain kind of black fulfillment is continually, um, if you will, becomes continually impossible. Um, Out of my own kind of intellectual grappling, I moved towards the question of marking it as interdicted by violence and then trying to think, well, well, once black people experience the violence, what do we do? And my argument is that we turn to, we continually turn to modes of reinvention, that Mm -hmm. we continually turn to modes of making lives that are not simply fugitive lives, um, but to making lives in which intramurally we have conversations. And I would say that, you know, I think the Afro-pessimists would say that that part is not what they're after, mm-hmm. that their project is something else. And, and I, and I totally, I totally get that. Um, yeah. 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 No, that's, that's, I, I mean, this, I think this book reads and, and would teach, but also generates, I think it's going to generate some really important scholarly reflections around that question. Um, and I really, you know, as a reader and an intellectual in, in, a, in, in the field, I was just so happy to see a sense of engagement with question of pessimism broadly, but also contemporary Afro-pessimism that, that didn't have a sort of polemical stake one way or another, right? And, uh, but really was exploring in this space of the intramural and question of invention, which I just think is incredibly complicated and difficult to sort out. You sort out so much for us, but it's difficult to sort out this, these questions of the intramural and, 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 and invention precisely because everything hangs in the balance, I think. Yeah, so much hangs in the balance. But, you know, like when you put Frank Wilderson in conversation with Kamal Braffitt and Walter Rodney and Saidea Hartman and, and Sylvia Winter and... And you think about, you know, the conversations that these intellectuals and their work inhabit. Mm-hmm. For me, one can't but see the power of invention. That, in mm-hmm. fact, the reason there's so much um, consternation around Afro-pessimism and its intervention into Black studies is because it's been one of the most powerfully dynamic, persuasive inventions of contemporary Black studies. So it's kind of like... Nicely put, I like that. (laughs) How can we not address the question of invention when one of the most powerfully persuasive um, recent interventions into Black studies is an example of, of, of fantastic invention? Yeah. Nicely put. I love that. That's. Uh, I'm going to borrow that. I will. I will cite you on that because I, I think you're. I think that's absolutely right, and it's a great way of just saying we got to take this. You know, this stuff has to be taken seriously, not because articles appeared, but because it goes to the heart of exactly what the question of the field is. Yeah. Exactly. So let exactly. me ask you. You know, when you when we write books. Um, you know, we have an idea, maybe it's a big idea, maybe it's a small idea, and we go out and we execute it as best we can, right? Put it on the page, edit, uh, goes to press. And um, one of the things I find odd about publishing a book is that I wanted very much to be clear about what I wanted to say. 
but I also know like what the hermeneutic event is, right? People read <laughs> as they want to read and they take what they want to take in some ways from the book. But at the same time, as writers, we form the form our books to 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 say something, to lead people somewhere. I really don't like the phrase takeaway, right? Um, and I often use the phrase walk away because I think like a, you know, when I imagine when I write a book, I actually want people to walk a little bit different, their bodies to be held differently, to breathe a little different, see a little bit different, right? That their movement be impacted in some way. Um, and we can't be totalitarian and shouldn't want to be, right? And have people read exactly as we want them to read. But at the same time, we do, as writers, I think, want the books to make people move differently in the world. And so I wanted to ask you as sort of, sort of you know, wrapping up our conversation, how do you want readers to walk away from this book? How do you want them to move differently? You know, funk, right? To move and smell and, and hear and listen and see differently. Yeah, you know, going back to this question of invention, I mean, I take seriously in, you know, the Black feminist turn of phrase that freedom is worth struggling for. And so even though I think I do write through a logic of pessimism, um, nonetheless, this notion that freedom is worth struggling for um, is a reminder for me that there's, there is something in excess of that which seems to be currently binding you. Mm-hmm. And so... If I want people to walk away with anything after reading this book, is 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 that is that truth that freedom is worth struggling for, but that also we should be aware of what the cost of that looks like, um, and and that in fact pessimism is not the ground from which you actually do nothing. That pessimism mm-hmm. is actually the ground from which we proceed to engage and continue to engage in a struggle that has been very long. Mm-hmm. And that the length of the struggle by no means makes it an illegitimate struggle. That in fact, it makes it one of the most legitimate struggles. So, you know, mm-hmm. in my other work, I've talked about how, you know, what we now call prison and carceral abolition is simply the extension of the abolition from slavery. Mm-hmm. That is that that what it marks is that abolition was never fully realized. And if mm-hmm. abolition had been fully realized, we wouldn't be in a struggle against prisons, judiciary, the carceral network that shapes black life and continues to shape black life. And it's mm-hmm. in that vein that, you know, this kind of question of emancipation ends the formal natures of slavery, but it mm-hmm. in no means inaugurates freedom. And mm-hmm. because it by no means inaugurates freedom, it means that our struggle has not been complete. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not trying to be teleological and saying that there's some time in the future that it becomes complete, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm definitely suggesting that, um, that there's something important about struggle. Not priestly, not mm-hmm. <laughs> not ethical and morally, not morally. Sorry, mm-hmm. not not morally 
um, sanctimonious or something, but ethically necessary in relationship to how we understand the life of the species. Yeah, that's that's a lot to think about. I I love that characterization. And it's also the way, you know, um, prophecy works is visions of the past and the future put the present out of joint. And, you know, there was, I I really, you know, when I read this book and, and, you know, when I think about like, how did I walk away from this book differently? um, I mean, I really felt like when I read it this summer, um, I really felt like a, like a, a different kind of attunement to the way the present is put out of joint precisely by your evocation of this stretch of time. And, um, you know, I think the way you articulated the stakes there, I mean, they, they, they couldn't be higher and more urgent, um, but also they are not brand new. Um, and we don't need a, you know, a, you know, a messianic moment in the future in order to, to struggle, right? As you said, it's worth struggling for. And that, that turn of phrase um, from the feminist tradition is, is extremely important. Let me ask yeah, you, it, you know, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yeah, it really is for me. It orients me to the world. I think the, the book absolutely has that effect. So if you're looking for that, absolutely, uh, you know, that's that's a strength of the book. It, it's, you, you can't put it down and move on. I, I think it definitely changes, uh, sen- alters our sensibilities in, in really important ways, really difficult ways. You know, just it's important, not in a, in a, a way that um, is anything short of difficult, but difficult is important. And uh, not to be fled from. Unfortunately, I'm just thinking about you know, you know, our entire nation's democracy is probably going to end tomorrow in the United States. <laughs> um, and so uh, the idea of, uh, of uh, uh, struggle not being a, a happy moment, but uh, instead that mixture of, of uh, redemption and, and plotting through the present. In a responsive way. It's a really responsive book that way. And so let me ask you, you know, I mean, we write books, you know, I ask about how do you want readers to sort of walk away from it. We write books and they do change us, right? We do also walk differently after we, we write books. And so I wanted to ask sort of where this writing this book leaves you, you know, now that you've had some time to think about it, there's something very cursed about the way we've, we turn in the very final manuscript and we have to wait months for it to actually appear. And, um, but, you know, with that sort of stretch of time and, and, and reflecting back on it, you know, where does this book leave you? You know, how do you walk differently? And, you know, this may be about future projects. I hate to ask about future projects as soon as a book comes out, you know, we should have the pleasure of the book coming out and what it has to say, but also that often opens up new horizons for us. So I wanted to sort of wrap up by asking you that, you know, where does this book leave you and where does it lead you? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, the book left me more pessimistic <laughs> than when I than when I began. And... And it left me with a kind of profound sense of having to do further work to think about the nature and quality of what might constitute freedom. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, one of the things that I, I, I was, like, terrified about in publishing this work was going to be that, oh, 
the critique would be that I don't understand what freedom is because I'm not quoting Kant and I'm not working through Hegel and, and all of that. And so I was like, I've imbibed all of that. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of, but I was worried that, that that's what my critics would, would, would say, you know? And so, you know, getting to where I got in, in the book and the book comes out um, after George Floyd. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I, I sink into a certain kind of pessimism, a profound pessimism of the moment. Um, and, you know, when people were talking about now this is a racial reckoning and so on and so forth, I was like, no, actually this deepens the problem. And of course, we're talking in, in, in 2022, and we know that the backlash is happening. And it's happening in all kinds of ways. A manufactured crisis about critical race theory, um, you know, um, diversity, the, equity, and inclusion projects that don't change anything. Um, you know, so the structure the of crime. what I was... Yeah, fear exactly. crime is absolutely dominating everything in this election. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, which is another way of saying that black people are a problem always. always <laughs> and, yeah. um, right. And, and, and it's that kind of precision that the Afro pessimist articulation of anti-black world helps us to get to really quickly now. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I end the book and I'm, I'm more pessimistic, but I'm also, um, I'm also like, in this phase of thinking really concretely and also theoretically about how black people carry on. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to return to freedom. I want to, I'm going to return to freedom to, um, I'm plotting out, I'm putting together little pieces as I build towards a big project on mm-hmm. questions of freedom and the sea. I really want to think about the sea as this kind of generative possibility for black life. Yeah. So I'm reading the historians on on Atlantic history and, and um, seamen and sailors and pirates mm-hmm. and thinking about the kinds of communities, but also thinking about, um, you know, I was born in a small island called Barbados thinking about the multiple relations that people have to the sea around them, the sea as labor and work, fishermen, tourism industry, but also the sea is something that's deeply feared. Um, mm-hmm. Many people can't swim or are not interested in going to the sea. Many others do. And trying to think about, you know, um, this kind of question of the sea and freedom in relationship to the invention of certain kind of black subject. Mm. So everybody from Olado Equiano is in my head to men whose names I no longer remember who used to be seamen when I was a child and seemed mm-hmm. to be the hippest, best dressed, happiest people I ever saw. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I can't wait to see where that takes you. I, you know, um, <laughs> uh, not to put any pressure on you but I hope you finish that project soon so <laughs> we can all read it um, 
And I, I just, I think, I think the question of the sea, I mean, it's my own work is, is interested in, in poets and essayists around this. And um, I just think there's so much there to be taken up in multiple registers. And I really look forward to seeing where you, where you take that. Well, thank you so much. I, you know, I love the book, as I said, um, I think it's a really compelling uh, read. Uh, I think it's a, a really, really important uh, intervention in our field. I, I know it'll get a wide readership and I'm really happy about that. But, you know, talking with you today and just getting this, this, all, all these new contours of the project, um, it just really uh, made me uh, love the book even more. So thank you for your words and I really appreciate uh, your time and energy. Thank you, John, for spending this time with me, asking me these wonderful questions and engaging me in conversation. I so appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Well, you take care. Okay. You too. Bye-bye.